A very warm welcome back to episode 12 of the Rugby Paper podcast. Today, I'm rejoined by Nick and Brendan as we welcome RFU referee Craig Maxwell-Keys to discuss the very controversial topic of laws of the game. Guys, thanks for joining me. And we are joined by RFU referee Craig Maxwell-Keys. How are you doing, Craig? Very well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. So... First things first, Craig, I want to know a bit more about you. You're 31 years of age. Just. Just 30. Okay. All right. Birthday is this week. Oh, wow. Happy birthday. Thank you. I would guess you're well over a decade in not just the professional referee scene, but refereeing in general. Yeah. So I think this is my eighth season as a professional referee. Yeah. Started back when I was 15. So that's coming on, yeah, 17 years. So yeah, being described as a, not a safe pair of hands, but the, the senior referee in lots of refereeing teams is not a, <laughs> not a, not a bit of progress I welcome. <laughs> Takes some getting used to, I suppose. Uh, and when you started age 15, was that a planned thing? The whistle first appeared when I was injured and I realised I was a useless spectator. Get far too agitated, far too involved, so I had to do something. So I ended up running touch and then, yeah, there was a referee course on locally. So I thought, that's where the thought came from. But I was like, right, I'll do that. Not many people expected it. Very introverted, very quiet. No one really expected that sort of character to be able to try and control 15 aside games on, on a rugby pitch so yeah did refereeing for a bit then went back to playing then the cycle repeats you get injured again you go back to refereeing and at that point I was about to head off to, to high school and there was a business manager at the high school that ran the local ref society and he was very persuasive in not getting me to referee full-time but to keep the refereeing alongside the playing um, so yeah circumstance of being injured circumstance of having the right people there that were in refereeing circles that, that wanted me to keep going and persuaded me to do so. You mentioned the introversion. And I think that's a, a thing a lot of people don't realise is actually being a referee, you've got to be really outspoken and able to put your foot down. So that was that a sort of personality challenge for you? It helped you sort of come out of your shell? I suppose, potentially, but an element of it was always there. I suppose refereeing just gave it the platform where it was most appropriate to show it. So yeah, something you always you're always building. That's probably the biggest challenge we have in the game as referees is how we interact and manage people. And there's a whole spread of characters in the game that we have to interact with. So you've got to have a wide range of, of tools in in the toolbox to deal with that. You're probably fed up of hearing this, but you are the youngest RFU referee to reach 100 matches. Obviously, that's a fantastic achievement. Well done. How does it feel to go from being the young head to the old head in a seemingly you know a couple of years? It takes you 20, 30 games to get your feet under the table and to, to actually get used to what Premiership Rugby's about. And then you blink and you're at, you're at 100. And I suppose that's a testament to the fact I enjoy what I do. Time just flies and you, you don't really think about the numbers until someone points out in the week that that's, that's going to be your 100th game. Clearly, people have, have put it up there as an achievement. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy with it, but it's basically 100 games and me getting to do my, my job, which is actually my hobby as well. The next steps, obviously, you were touch judge in Rome. When do you foresee a potential first bout as an international referee taking centre stage? Yeah, so that's that's the interesting bit here. So that that is not going to happen for me. I I resigned a few weeks ago from full time refereeing. Oh wow! So I am launching. It probably picks up on the back of your episode last week quite well. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Talking about career transitions with the guys last week. Um, so I will still be refereeing in the Premiership. So people don't need to get too excited. Keep the champagne on ice. You've you've not got rid of me completely. Um, so I'll still be doing it on a, call it what you will, a consultancy, a part-time basis. But yeah, I will be launching into a new career come June. So quite exciting times for me. What's the new career? Uh, without saying too much, I'll be going into the ranks of the civil service. 
Very cool. Does that that means the frequency of your professional refereeing will drop, presumably, in the Premiership as well? You'd like to think so, but we're not rich with resource. You may still see me week in, week out, but yeah, it will be um, it will be down to, I suppose, my availability, which is linked to any hobby. So I'm very much seeing it as a win-win. I get my hobby back. I still get to referee. But yeah, like the guys were talking about last week on the podcast, you, you get to launch into a new exciting chapter of your life. Okay. Well, Let me right, quite full-time there, Craig, just to butt in a bit, because obviously Wayne Barnes does a couple of days a week, doesn't he, at his legal chambers. But yep. with this new career initiative, are you going to be Monday to Friday to a certain extent with the civil service? And will that slightly impact on, on your weekly availability? Um, yeah, so you are, you lose a lot of the week to week stuff that goes on. So um, a lot of our stuff now is virtual. So you can still yeah. thankfully jump on on the key calls virtually. Obviously, the, the club visits that we do, etc., would normally be in the week. So yeah, there's a lot of things that will will drop off. One thing I want to, and maybe you'll be thankful when you do give up um, refereeing full time to not have this anymore, is the negative noise after a performance and referees they are cultivated scapegoats which you know is is an unfortunate sort of symptom of the job but if a referee has a poor day the fans get their knives out of the stadium the social media fans do afterwards how do you deal with that if you've ever had a day where you've made one or two contentious decisions how do you deal with negative noise both in the stadium when you're hearing the boos of home fans and you have to block that out and think I've got to do my job and then afterwards as well, when you're at home and you go online and people say, oh, the ref was, you know, cost us the game, etc. One or two contentious decisions is a good day for me, so I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so the social media piece, I mean, we were talking about it the other week, actually, because um, it, came, it came back up after the Premiership a few weeks back, where there was lots of negativity on that platform. For me, it's quite simple. I'm not on Twitter, so I don't go Googling myself. I don't go reading comments here, there and everywhere. Um, I leave my brother to do that and he gleefully then WhatsApps me all the lovely comments out there while he's he's pissing himself. So it's quite easy for me to detract or detach from social media by just not engaging with it. I know myself whether I've had a good day or not. My own self-appraisal, my coach's own review is, is normally good enough to know that. Um, coupled with when we sit down as a refereeing group and we peer review each other, like that process is really strong. So I know that the group is going <laughs> to tell me what I need to hear if it's not good enough. But equally, if it's been a really good day at the office, you'll get the praise and the pat on the back as well. In the stadium piece is really interesting. And the pandemic, again, gave us a nice insight into the stats around home advantage and home advantage disappearing. But yeah, you think you've hit the nail on the head. We've got a job to do. So when you go into particularly TMO reviews, when... The game has stopped. It is all about that review. And I suppose that's the biggest moment when the fans are on you. The outcome is what matters there. The skill is then just following that process. And if you've rehearsed it mentally well enough and you've done it enough times, it almost it clicks into being automatic. Like you haven't ridden a bike for 10 years. You jump back on it, you know what to do. So it's very straightforward or it gets more straightforward that it just becomes noise. And it's actually arguably easier to referee in the elite game from that perspective than the, the amateur game. When there's 10 people watching, you hear every single comment. <laughs> when there's 20,000 people all shouting at the same time, it's just a blur. Yeah, that's always it. So I was at the Quinns game uh, at the weekend, Quinns Montpellier, and obviously the stoop was absolutely raucous. Uh, and there was a series of scrum penalties and Mike Adamson was the referee. I was one of those in the crowd clamoring for a yellow card and the yellow card took maybe seven or eight scrums um, to come. But... 
that sort of noise, that's not something you can really prepare for as a referee until you're out there. So what sort of training do you guys receive to actually be under the influence of the hot pot that is a 20,000, a 60,000, a 90,000 stadium and not be swayed by the way the fans are sort of pushing you towards? Yeah, you, you think that's the biggest challenge we face. It's like clubs obviously train in the week. We go from game to game. It's really hard physically. You can do running, et cetera, but to physically put yourself under mental fatigue and make life decisions is really hard for us to replicate. So sometimes like I've been in club sessions where they've been playing their training game on the main stadium pitch, blasting out crowd noise or blasting out the, the particular songs you associate with different clubs, particularly in Europe. So if you're involved in a club session like that, that, that can help because you're in a big stadium, you've got loads of noise coming out of the PA system. But no, the best thing we can do is bar be really fit. So physically, we, we've got the capacity to deal with what the game throws at us is when we review as a group is to look at as many. So that's, that five-meter scrum sequence would have been one we'd have, we'd have looked at along with many others. Um, we'd have completely taken it to pieces so that we've got a really clear process in our mind, like what we're going to do in what order, how slow, how fast, and then having confidence in that that process means that when the pressure comes on, you can default to it quite naturally. That, that's the best we can do. And then it's a case of embracing the challenge. You normally get thrown off in those scenarios when, when you don't want to be there. Um, yeah. You've got to just embrace that challenge and enjoy being there. One last thing about background about you. You came out at the age of 23, I think it was, which was very in and around the time that you became a professional referee. Now, becoming a professional referee and going through those thoughts and emotions at the same time, how did you feel and did you feel stepping onto a pitch different afterwards for at least the first, I don't know, however long? So no, professional refereeing. So I probably was doing it for what, a year before I came out. Okay. okay. So I was about to come out and then the job came up at Twickenham and I gave it a year just to get my feet under the table, I suppose, get to know people, get to know what the professional bubble is, is like. Then I came out. In terms of a difference, refereeing, I suppose, is always an escape. And that's probably the biggest compliment I can play the game is that I always knew, even when I was in the closet, like I could turn up to a rugby ground referee and nobody really cared about that. Like you could be a 15-year-old kid refereeing or a 50-year-old. All they cared about is that you refereed as well as you could and as fairly as you could. So I was really comfortable, whatever the environment, refereeing both before and after. The only thing I would say is lots of people post coming out have said that the way that I interact with people seems a lot more authentically me a lot more naturally me so maybe there was something holding me back when it came to dealing with individuals um i didn't notice it but then you tend not to notice stuff that's that detailed on a day-to-day basis it's only people looking outside in that, that can comment on that um, so that was the biggest observation after i after i came out i suppose that interacting with people both on and off the pitch um main, i think mainly on the pitch um, okay, interesting. To be fair, in those in those pressure situations, and I don't know whether that that comes down to potentially I was so used to having to to spin a web of deceit to throw people off the scent that I could have been gay. That you're always a bit guarded and, and less than than honest and authentic in how you interacted, and I suppose throwing those shackles off, I suppose naturally, then changes how you're going to interact with people because you're no longer trying to hide anything and you're you're no longer on edge about saying the wrong thing. <laughs> Good morning, Craig. Do you actually? feel that it's a, a taboo subject or do you feel that actually rugby is pretty welcoming these days of people of all persuasions and, and sexuality and so on? Yeah, no, I don't think it is a taboo subject. I think some people are potentially afraid to start that conversation because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing, which is, I think, where we are with too many things at the moment. People just don't want to talk about stuff because they may say the wrong thing, despite the fact their heart's in the right place which I think I think is a sad thing. I think people should be able to start a conversation without the fear of, 
of saying the wrong thing, particularly if they're allies. But no, I think rugby has has been inclusive, continues to, to grow in, in that area. Clearly, there's still work to do. Quinn's obviously, you mentioned earlier, Ollie hosts the Pride game and they obviously bring a number of bits of research to the table, um, which still highlights that there's a challenge. But I think it's wrong for us not to acknowledge that a lot's changed in the last 10 years and we're, we're moving in the right direction, but we, we need to keep the momentum behind that movement. I suppose by taboo, I mean that because of the nature of rugby, it being so physical, such a typically man sport, I would imagine that there are tons of, you know, there are people who play rugby or involved in rugby or whatever, who remain publicly in the closet because of that fear and the uh, image that rugby gives itself. And so do you feel that steps are being taken in the right direction on that front as well? Like with the state of acceptance with your homosexuality now, is that a positive sign? Oh, absolutely. And I think people mention that the player sort of aspect of this all the time and they're not being any open, the gay top flight players. But like that journey to come out is in a uniquely personal one with lots of different factors at play. All rugby can do is create an environment where it's as inclusive as possible for as many people as possible. And if it lives up to that, which is very, not easy, but it's aligned with its values. So we're well-placed anyway from that perspective. So provided rugby keeps doing all it can to make it as welcoming as possible an environment, then it's down to the individuals and their own unique circumstances to go on that, that journey. It's a topic that needs more discussion, more discussion on this podcast as well. And I'm sorry that we don't have time to talk about it more, but we know that will do in later episodes on the Rugby Paper podcast. Let's move on to laws of the game. What I want to know, obviously, Brenda and I were speaking about how a law change actually happens. There's the World Rugby Committee. Uh, they make an announcement. What's the referee involvement in the process? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, it's changed recently. So you take the high tackle sanction framework, which I think most people are aware of. You take the, not the law changes, but the re-emphasis on how the breakdown was to be refereed. Those are the first two examples where World Rugby have adopted quite a collaborative approach. So you've had a task force put together, which has got your World Rugby administrators on, because obviously it needs to be implemented, but also coaches, players and referees. So collaboratively coming together to decide what, I suppose, what needs to be done, what are the best changes, what are the best sort of re-clarifications, and then how do we communicate that, so on and so forth. So it has changed recently. Before that, um, I couldn't really tell you because the first we would hear about it is when the PowerPoint dropped from World Rugby saying that here's a law change. That was our first involvement in the process. So we weren't. Um, whereas of late, that's changed and it's clearly changed for the better. I think everyone would acknowledge having current and ex-players, coaches and referees involved in that process is, is only a positive step forward. Craig, can you talk us through the one that caught me and Ollie by surprise? For the Six Nations, about three days before the Six Nations, yep. you suddenly got this announcement about the ball popping out at the, the base of a, of a ruck. And you suddenly had to draw this imaginary one-yard circle where you weren't allowed to come in and take the ball. And so yet, yet more protection for scrum halves who could play until 50 these days. They're so protected. But in the Premiership Rugby, I mean, surely... The rule, the law that we understood was, you know, the ball pops out as long as you come from an onside position and the ball is there, uh, you know, the scrum half's gone AWOL, you can dive in and take it. And then you suddenly, was that an interpretation for the Six Nations or was that a new law that came out three days before the Six Nations? Yeah, so so things like that, so it's a good point. That did literally come out of nowhere. So that was a law interpretation. So that wasn't a law change. That was simply someone clarifying existing law. So that normally happens when a union makes a request towards rugby. Like we would like some clarification on this particular issue. So the same has happened with 
diving to score a try. So I think we can all remember the Johnny May try in the England-Italy game, I think, in the corner. And then there's a clip recently that's come out of Super Rugby. So um, a union requested clarification there about what is diving to score a try versus jumping over a tackle. Um, So those are all law clarifications, um, which go straight toward rugby's laws committee, and they will then give you the answer. So in terms of that, yeah. Um, so then the, the confusing bit is then at the weekend, I saw a couple of instances when we're back to the old interpretation where if the ball pops out, as long as you're coming from an onside position, you can dive in and get it. There's not the one yard um, circumference thing. So heaven knows what the casual um, fan makes of this sometimes. The only thing I'd say on that is World Rugby have recently just taken on board, it's one of our old TMOs actually, to help them communicate law sort of clarifications like this because we, we completely accept when something comes out that quick, um, communicating it to the elite game is complicated enough, let alone the, the whole community game. And then obviously when something comes in so late in the day, the famous word of referees consistency, it's always going to be a challenge to get that level of, of consistency straight off the bat, um, especially when we had questions to go back as well. So that law clarification came out even, it raised questions even for us because it doesn't just, that law doesn't just apply to a defender. So if the attacking nine sees that ball bobble out and dives on it and it's still within a metre, He's also got to be penalised, so it applies to attack. It applies to attack and defence. So that was one of our questions here: Is this only a defender diving on the ball as it emerges, or does that apply to the other team as well? And law doesn't differentiate between attack and defence in that scenario. So when you get to the really nausea level of law, yeah, that's probably the unintended consequence that law clarification threw up. With the jumping to score a try, I have seen that Super Rugby clip. I can't remember who the player was, but it was a Chiefs player, wasn't it? think so, yeah. Now, with the new clarification, would that Johnny May try have stood? And obviously the Chiefs player, he jumped over the tackler a good couple of yards away from the try line. Did there even need to be any clarification? Because jumping over a player, unless you're actually near the try, you know, jumping too directly groundable in that movement wasn't legal anyway. Yeah, so the clarification... (laughs) came but it basically said referees will apply their judgment <laughs> um, <laughs> which isn't necessarily the most useful thing um, it gives us wiggle room um, the Johnny May one at one point was actually deemed illegal but it, it's not anymore and the, the, you've already hit the nail on the head so if you're diving to score a try the ball tends to be out in front of you and you land on the floor which you said and I think as you said it's the Chiefs one I think where he jumps over the player lands on his feet and then and then goes uh, to yeah. score so that, that's probably the key differential between what a dive is, which is the ball is normally going to be out in front of you and you're going to land on the floor to score, not land on your feet and then have to keep going before you get to the try line. You've well, already- there you have un- unintended consequences again. If you're jumping to score a try, if you tackle that person in the air, you're an illegal tackler. So how does that work? Yeah, no, there's been a few clips thrown up here. Like We want players to tackle lower, but if they're going to get low and then be hurdled, essentially it, it, it throws up another avenue or again if you jump and tackle someone in the air but that's where the word judgment probably helps us so we I think we appreciate that if someone jumps a millisecond before a tackle there's no way that tackler can be deemed at fault because the picture changes so suddenly in front of him we'd, we'd always come down on the side of well that's not foul play if Johnny May is leaping through the air to score a try and someone comes and smashes him into touch while he's mid-air is that legal or not you, well you're allowed to tackle someone to prevent them scoring Okay. I guess the complication comes in is if somebody jumps and then makes contact with the head or, you know, the temple area of somebody coming in to tackle them. Yeah, so that, that still wouldn't change. So that as much as we say they can be tackled to, 
to prevent the try being scored, that tackle, obviously, the second it does, if it hits them in the head, then yeah, you're into the framework of dealing with dealing with foul play okay. in that legal dive scenario. Now, we've already made a distinction between law clarification and law changes. Yep. There have been several law changes this year, uh, one of them being the 50-22, which seems to be the most, well, I absolutely love it. Do you guys at HQ have indication of whether this will stick around? Yeah, so there is the fair bit of data obviously being generated because they're, they're global now, so there's, there's not a lack of data on them. I'm not really convinced the data says that they've made that much difference, but equally they haven't made the game worse. Um, and I personally, looking at the, the 50-22, um, isn't much of a change for us as referees. Like we still have yeah. to clock when the ball's taken back into the 22 in terms of whether it can be kicked out on the full or not. So it's not too much of a shift. So we, we don't mind it. Uh, and I get the I think there's a kick from the Saracens game at the weekend, wasn't there, with Andy Goode, which was a spectacular one from no angle. He manages to get a 50-22. So you have those moments of magic, if you like, like that, which only adds to the game. I personally love the goal line dropout, particularly from a pick-and-go scenario, because it just removes five-metre scrums, which probably links to some of your law proposals at the end about getting rid of scrums completely. So no, I don't think they've harmed the game. So whether they'll stay or not depends where they set the threshold, but they've not harmed the game. So I'm, I personally would, not be surprised if they all stayed. I can't decide what I think about the goal line dropout. I like the fact that there's no five meter scrum after uh, a player, an attacking player, is held up. Fewer scrums speeds up the game, and also I think you should reward the team that holds a player up. It encourages more rugby and broken play because obviously if you score a try around the outside, you're not going to be held up. The goal line dropout replacing the 22, the 22 dropout. Sorry, I wondered how you felt about that. For example, if a ball is touched down in the young goal area, that then meaning a goal line dropout, which to me, and I'm more than open to your opinion here, it encourages slightly more aimless kicking. Yeah, I get that. I suppose, particularly if they're going for a 50-22 and they get it wrong and it ends up dribbling into the in goal area. The way I would counter that potentially links to being able to score a drop kick straight off a goal line dropout. I, I don't see why that's allowed. In existing law, if you're awarded a free kick, you can't technically tap it, pass it and drop kick it anyway. There needs to be a phase of play. So why that doesn't apply to goal line dropouts in relation to drop kicks, I, I don't know. But I personally quite like the fact, as you say, it removes the scrums, it restarts the game quicker and you're straight back into attacking rugby because the attacking team are a lot closer to your line than they would be from a 22. Um, and I guess the argument about them grounding it would be don't ground it to the defence, pick it up and run it back. Yeah, And you haven't, got to have a goal line dropout and you're you're not in that scenario so the argument there would be keeping the ball in play more continuity yeah attack from further out just clarify what you mean by not a drop goal not being possible from a goal line dropout so I think we've seen a few clips I think Dan Robson did it in the Prem I think was it maybe at Gloucester the other week so drop goal line dropout is taken player just catches oh, I it see. Right. lines yeah, up yeah, a drop yeah. kick yeah. and slots it Seems I'm not easy. sure that's the purpose of the law being brought in Thing is, Craig, I really like that. That, that to me is the strong. I mean, we Stuart Hogg did it from the halfway line the other yeah. day, and it's bringing back a skill that was disappearing. So I'm, I'm not totally convinced, by the way, about the, the goal line drop out. But the thing I do like about it is the the consequences of it. And in fact, you can get back on the attack pretty quickly, it seems yeah. to me, and you can immediately go into point scoring mode. The bit I don't really like about it is you can have a, a long sustained attack go within half an inch of scoring a try and suddenly you know the, the advantage goes to the defense but no i love the drop kicks i think they're great yeah. <laughs> i mean without i mean dan dan robson's drop kick was spectacular and so was stuart hogs but i take the point that it could just be a, 
a, a free opportunity for uh, for three points almost every time if you, if you yep. position people strategically. And just one final thing on before we get to uh, the quick fire 15 questions, Greg, in terms of growth of the game. Now, the reason I think that football does so well, or one of the reasons is definitely because they the law changes are minimal and they keep it consistent. Obviously, some people don't know the offside rule, for example, that's probably the most contentious or complicated one. But that doesn't really matter uh, because you can still watch the game in its entirety and all these micro decisions, they don't matter quite as much. Whereas the decisions for penalties, why do they happen? Why is he suddenly kicking a goal? Why is there a scrum, etc. With rugby, it obviously matters more. Now, these decisions have been made in part to simplify the game, or some of them have. Is there a sort of incompatibility between making the decisions to simplify the game, but also complicating the game in the process? Rugby is a complicated sport. For all the law changes you make, I, I don't think you're gonna you're gonna get to the point where people that play rugby fully understand what's going on, let alone the new spectators we're trying to attract. But that then just opens up the other avenue of, okay, it's complicated, but how do we better communicate what is going on? I think there's still work to be done there. So we have ref links, we have in-stadium, big screens, digital advertising. I think obviously in the Premiership Cup, we've trialled the NFL-style system of opening the mic to the stadium to communicate what's going on at big decisions. So I think that's probably the frontier for me that that needs cracking to make the particularly the in-stadium experience as good and as informative as watching from a pub or your sofa at home. Um, I think that that for me is where the challenge lies to to upskill, to educate, and to include yeah. people in the decision-making process because. So it's, yeah, that's our challenge as officials is articulating what's going on so that people can still disagree with what we do, but at least they know how we've arrived at that decision and what factors we've considered. And that's where we are better than football. And we keep telling our colleagues in football, they need to open up that VAR process so people can hear what's going on because it will just add an extra level to, to the entertainment that football already is. That's very how interesting. Impre- how impressed are you by the speed with which the officials come to their conclusions in NFL, I'd, I'd argue that they do it much, much more quickly. They are very, very efficient at what they do. Can you illuminate that at all? Because sometimes our process seems extraordinarily convoluted. Uh, yes, I'd agree. My most recent experience of a convoluted process came on a, a non-live TV game. So you're limited in camera angles, and then you're also limited in the TV production crew. So for all the will in the world as a referee and a TMO, I cannot make that decision any quicker because I'm working with limited angles and a limited TV crew. So it's naturally going to take time. Whereas you go to the NFL, they've got Christmas, how many cameras at a game, but it's lots. And they have a bunker system um, where they are controlling the lot. So, and you can also argue that a bunker system will give you more consistency, which is how VAR operates as well. Yes, you've got different VARs for each game, but you also have the, the bunker management crew, if you like, who yeah. know what's happened in all six games across the weekend and can jump in and, and supervise each decision as well. I know EPCR from a European perspective have explored and are continuing to explore that bunker system. So I think we're moving in, in that direction. But yeah, the answer in terms of speed, I think, lies there in terms of the number of cameras, the number of TV crew you have and sort of their dedicated purpose to serve us and getting us the angles, not to serve the TV audience at home, yeah. um, separating those roles. Um, and then, yeah, putting it in a bunker so it's centralised. Craig, I've noticed a change of emphasis just recently. Referee is, is the sole arbiter of law on the pitch. And yet when TMOs come in now, they're saying, Craig, I want you to look at this and I want you to look at this forward pass. I want you to look at this piece of foul play 
whatever. Surely it's, it's your decision still. They can bring relevant footage to your attention. Craig, we need to look at this. I'm not sure about the touchdown, but I'm not sure I like very much the TMO telling you what the decision has to be. No, it's an interesting observation. Um, we, we as referees want to make on-field decisions. So believe it or not, sometimes we're acutely aware that putting 16 different angles of something on a screen doesn't necessarily help a situation. Yeah. So we want to make an on-field decision. So the reason then the TMO would be wording it like that is because our brief to them is if you're going to come in and trump an on-field decision, you have to have clear evidence. So in theory, now 99% of the time they get it, they get it right. So when they say, I'm going to show you a forward pass or I'm going to show you red six hitting blue four in the head with his shoulder, that's what happens. And we want them to be that prescriptive because that's the only reason they're coming in. It's to show us something that's clear that overrules what we've done on field. But to go back to your other point, we can still look at it on the big screen and go, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I don't agree with you. I, I don't think that's clear. And on the basis that I've given a try on field or I've given a, a scrum on field, whatever it is, I'm not going to change that, that decision. So yeah, the wording is they should be coming in quite confidently because they're, they're trumping what we've done on field, but we reserve the right to, to wave it away and say no. I, I don't. Wayne did that twice, I think, in a match recently. He was getting it sounded like he was getting a bit irritated. Yeah, that, that, kept on coming in. that then becomes the skill, how you articulate. Thank you very much for that. Without yeah. sounding <laughs> we've just wasted two minutes of this game. Yeah. What are you doing? And to be fair, sometimes, believe it or not, for all the how however big the screens are, I think we all can relate to lots of incidents recently where it's been really close as to whether it's say indirect or direct head contact. Sometimes we forget the TMO has a 4K crystal liquid display TV in the truck, whereas we've got a massive pixelated screen in the stadium. So you will hear us at times go, whoever the TMO is like, so for me, it's Kitty this weekend. Like, Kitty, you need to tell me where the point of contact is. Like, yeah. You are the person with the best screen and the best resource to, t to give me the answer to that question because it's too close and I can't judge off this screen. Um, so there is a time where the TMO is the best place person to, to give those decisions. Yeah, I was just going to say, Craig, that for the purposes of actually, you know, there's a lot of talk about speeding the game up, et cetera, et cetera. One of the ways to do that would actually be to use the sighting process far more, wouldn't it? Yeah, the debate is, is currently going on around, do you take, I suppose, the rugby league, we mentioned earlier, like put things on report. But the challenge of that is you referees then don't want to make decisions and acts that should be sanctioned live aren't. Um, I mean, we don't mind making decisions as referees. That's why we're in the business and we back ourselves to do it. So I think as a default, you want to, you want to keep that with on-field officials. In the interest of time, um, we're going to go to Craig Maxwell Keyes' Random Rugby 15 very quickly. <laughs> and then the fun stuff begins, uh, speaking about tackles, scrums, feeding in scrums and forward passes. Craig, brace yourself for that. Nick and Brendan, I will mute you and censor you if you go in too hard on <laughs> some of the laws. Uh, so... Okay, so Craig, it's 15 questions. Say as much or as little as you like, but they are supposed to be quick fire ish Okay, yeah. nickname? Siv, as in after the kitchen utensil, because I used to be a goalkeeper back in my youth. Not a very good one. <laughs> nice, best rugby memory. Either the Army-Navy at Twickenham um, when it was sold out um, or refereeing Munster against the Maori All Blacks over at Thurman Park. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Uh, it still happens to this day, but yeah, whenever you're setting a scrum and your voice breaks, um, it sounds hideous. The front row just, yeah, just laugh at you. <laughs> it's just a very embarrassing and awkward place to be and you, you wish the ground would eat you up at that moment in time. 
pre-game tune? Uh, I'm not allowed pre-game tunes. I am awful when it comes to music tastes. Um, You'd get One Direction, Westlife, sort of Aqua, Dr. Jones, all those sorts of hideous, cheesy tunes. Um, Yeah, so I am banned from from music pre-game and in the gym at Twickenham for that matter. I'm hearing no issues with that selection whatsoever, (laughs) but okay, post-game meal. Curry and a pint. Now, I've had to modify the question slightly because obviously you're a referee, not a player. So best player you've refed for? The name that jumped to mind was Jack Berger. Just anyone who's, yeah, pretty physical, wears a heart on their sleeve, loves a good contest, and more often than not, not always, but more often than not, keeps it keeps it fair and square. Um, so anyone that fits into that bracket, he was a name that jumped to mind, particularly from the physicality perspective and loving a contest. Favourite player right now? Again, like I love the players that when they get the ball, like the crowd just sounds naturally more energised. Like they could literally do anything. So whether it's a Marcus Smith or Manu Tuolangi getting a ball, that the crowd comes alive. So anyone that's got the ability to bring that, that level of energy and intrigue to a game is, is equally enjoyable for us to referee. Rugby idol. Um, Johnny Wilkinson for me. I was a kid when obviously we won the World Cup and I think more so for his off-the-field attributes as just as much as his on-field skill. Like he was someone that, very softly spoken, but went about doing everything very professionally, led by example. Those sorts of attributes really resonate with me favourite stadium Um, I love Cardiff when the roof is shut it's a stunning place to be the fans the banter the rivalry um, is is brilliant and it's location is is very good favourite gym exercise (laughs) I went for foam rolling because it's absolutely (laughs) torturous but you feel so good afterwards so yeah I am not someone I'll leave the likes of Christoph Ridley to, to go and lift the silly weights in the gym or Carl Dixon to do his CrossFit and all that sort of swingy stuff from bars believe it or not from a selection of about 15 players and ex-players we've not had foam rolling yet for that question <laughs> we had uh, Martin Whitcomb who was a prop he said the plank which was very surprising <laughs> but foam rolling is just as out there um, so occupation if rugby didn't exist you answered that question earlier, haven't we? Yes. After yes, the civil service. Exactly, civil service. Uh, superstitions? Uh, yeah, none. Probably quite surprisingly. Like, I, like there's people, like, I know Chris White, who coached me, would always bounce the ball against the wall and do that religiously before heading out onto the pitch. I think you've probably, Nigel has his odd balls underpants, doesn't he, back when he refereed. Yeah. For me, there's none, which is probably quite useful and quite handy. Favourite law? <laughs> um <laughs> There's a refereeing one, which I quite like, which is we're not allowed to be 22'd. So if you've got intercepts hairing down the field and you're chasing down whoever it is, Johnny May, like you've got to make the 22 as a minimum. I quite like that because I always make the try line where you've got like the guys like Wayne or, or Matt Carley barely getting to the 22. So that's just, an, <laughs> that's just an internal bit of rivalry amongst referees. That's a great law, that 22 law. Who's the, who are the, this isn't in the 15 questions, but. If you, if you want to say, who are the fastest and who are the slowest referees? I've given you the two slowest. <laughs> um, the fastest, yeah, you're probably between me, Christoph, uh, and Adam Leal, um, okay. who's, on the, who's on the seven series at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. uh, Mike Adamson, he could have scored the try at Queen's. <laughs> he, he was right up there, wasn't he? The long, yeah, long he did Martha well. Smith break, he really got there. Uh, rugby rule you would change. Oh, there's where do we start? I think someone's mentioned it loads of times, but I, I agree on the more front, like when that hits the ground and it's not illegal. I don't understand why we don't want to encourage continuity and, and keeping the ball live. So that that's probably the most common one. 
I think it's being discussed at the moment, but I would change the remit water carriers have. Like I cannot stand the fact they charge onto the pitch at every given opportunity. It then takes an age to get rid of them and an age to restart the game. So I quite liked what we had during COVID, which is a set water break in each half. And then after that, keep the water off the pitch. Best thing <laughs> about working in rugby? Oh, geez, there's loads, isn't there? Um, I think we have the best seat in the house um, and it's a position that you get for merit. Like money can't pay for that position. So yeah, it has to be that. Yeah. Awesome, Craig. Right. Here we go. So I'm just going to say the word scrums and go straight to you, Nick, uh, and say that this is Nick Kane on a leash rather than Nick Kane unhinged. So go easy, but go, but semi go for it. No, we'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll go easy. But look, the goal line dropout has unquestionably impacted the scrum, the number of scrums. Now, you know, from what the tenor of the conversation earlier, that's seen as being a good thing. I certainly don't agree with that. There are obviously much fewer five-meter scrums as a, cons- as a consequence. Why should we have a rugby r- league rule diminishing the scrum as a cornerstone of rugby union? If the ball's held up over the line, maybe give it as, as a defending put in. It would have been, been a truer reflection of, of rugby union's tradition. Basically, my contention is, is that bad lawmaking first. Referees have to deal with bad lawmaking. And that's not their fault. Bad lawmaking initially, refereeing inconsistencies, obviously the most clear example of it is allowing the squint feed for so long before it was eventually given as a sort of half-baked law. I'm guessing that some of it, uh, you know, particularly when uh, it comes to the sort of endless penalties for collapse, is because of a lack of knowledge of scrummaging. Now, I know that this has been addressed in some way but the scrum is an intrinsic part of the game and it is a contest for the ball it should be a contest for the ball it is not just a means of restarting the game I just feel that the whole uh, area of the scrum has been debased over the last 20 years and we're now living with the consequences of it you know we've had a six nations game in which a referee allowed the whip wheel to completely change the course of the game when uh, there had been a clear directive, as far as I understand it, to referees before the start of the Six Nations that scrums that were going forward, square and straight, should be rewarded and not those that whip wheel. Good scrum ball is the best attacking ball in the game at the moment. So few teams actually use it as such. Yeah, this, I suppose it's, it's a debate that will, will never come to agreement in the sense that we've talked about the game growing earlier. And, and the problem is with new fans coming into the game, they don't understand the scrum. They want to be entertained. There's more sport to choose from than ever before. And 10 minutes of scrummaging isn't entertaining to most of those new breeder spectators. But the problem of that position is it contradicts completely where the games come from, as you say, traditionally. So then you're stuck between arguably a rock and a hard place as to how you sort of find a satisfactory position. I think there's a joint responsibility here. So I agree the laws are one thing. How we then referee it is another. But players and coaches here have a responsibility as well. If they bring a negative mindset, if you know you're up against a team that's a good scrummaging team, you will do everything you can to make it as complicated to referee and as as confusing a situation as possible. Uh, and if you know you're, you've got two 
two equally matched teams coming together, it will either be a really good contest or they'll try and undermine each other by, again, lowering the standards. And then we as referees are left to pick up the pieces as to how we wade through that. So I think for the first part of my professional career, I think the onus was put on as much the clubs and the coaches and the players. Like If you want the scrum to be this integral part, you need to bring a more positive approach to it. That was married with us as referees being told, right, we've got to live up to our end of the bargain here. We need to referee X, Y, and Z. And we ended up with a situation where scrums were still detracting massively. So then the lawmakers went, fine, we've given you a chance. We're now going to change it. And we're going to, to force the issue towards the making it a bigger spectacle. And you can see that shift with a 20-minute red card law. That's principally geared towards a spectacle, which is shifting away from where the game traditionally has has been quite arguably. The scrum is a very challenging part of the game and how we as referees can improve there, I think is definitely the next chapter for, for Paul to look at. Um, not just ad hoc scrum interventions, but potentially having a scrum consultant work with us week in, week out to get that that longer term consistency there. One point I go back to is my brother plays community rugby. The scrums work at the grassroots. Yeah. I watch National 1, National 2, National 3 stuff. The scrums tend to work. The ball goes in, they have a good old pushing contest and the ball comes out. It's only in the elite game where we get this game of chess and the shenanigans that goes on, which then goes back to, well, where does the fault lie? Because the laws are the same in the community game. Yeah. I'd like to think the referees necessarily aren't as good as us in the community game. So then it comes down to the, the extra edge that the players and the coaches bring to it in the professional game and all that analysis that comes in to find those incremental gains, which then brings us into the game. One of the other things I'd say, just regarding the crooked feed, is that one of the reasons that the ball gets stuck in the scrum to the, to the degree that it does and the weight has to be kept on for such long periods is because hookers no longer, if you don't put the ball down the middle of the scrum, a hooker cannot get a clean strike. If he's striking at something behind him, he's got no traction to get it back. So the clean strike goes out of the game. And that is the quickest ball and the best attacking ball that you can get from a straight hill to the eight. And a one, yep. Yeah. And, and, and so that's where the nonsense comes in, in here. You know, the art of hooking for, for a time was taken out of the game. There were hookers at the top end of the game who could not hook. They've never hooked, yep. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a travesty. In a way, it went on by stealth. And when it comes to the idea of selling the game to a wider audience, look, you, you know, I mean, it's not difficult to, uh, to see the argument. But you, I, I think that if you start from the premise that what you do is you deconstruct what has made a game attractive and has, has be, made it a game for all shapes and sizes, crucially, then you are torpedoing, you, you know, your own sport. I, you know, I mean, to me, so it, it's more that you, you, you know, the education process in inverted commas that must go on is for those new fans to the sport to understand and be, you know, be informed about how important and how actually how skillful this part of the game is. You know, the fact that they're, you know, they're carrying a flatbed truck on their shoulders, you know, and, and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, if strongman sports have a, uh, an appeal, which they do, in you know whether it's the olympics or whatever else then yep. you know teach people about the scrum teach people about those intricacies don't just you know sort of kowtow to the lowest common denominator and say oh you know it, it's a bl bunch of blokes pushing against each other we don't want to watch it 
<laughs> Difficult. Um, what I was going to say is the thing is with if we take strongman sports, I don't think the average spectator is looking at it for the intricacies. If anything, they're looking at it because it's very big, very strong people just pushing against one another. And there's something quite raw about that. And so actually, I would argue the opposite is we're not trying to you know, make the scrums incredibly complicated. Like Craig said, with the lower division game, you're looking at players pushing, you know, maybe one gets some traction. I agree with you on the feed, Nick. I think a hooker strike would promote much more attacking rugby. And I know that, Craig, you might correct me if I'm wrong. Law changes are, are being made or clarifications. I don't know which they are about anyone being able to hook. So the props could strike if they want to. And the number eight can take the ball from the second row now. So hopefully that would speed it up. But I don't think it's about clarifying the intricacies, but rather just letting people push and hopefully keeping the scrums as quick as possible. Craig, am I right about those changes? Uh, there's there's a number of things being considered, yeah. Um, whether you... You can argue if you fix the hook, the eight shouldn't have to pick it out of the second row. Um, yeah. If you don't fix the hook, then you can allow the eight to, to reach into the scrum and, and collect it. So they seem opposite ideas. One should resolve the other, whichever way you go down. So yeah, obviously it's on the back of the break foot, obviously existing at, at scrums as to whether you then extend hooking across the front row. There's a number of ideas in place. I know one of the points raised previously has been around stop clocks. So do you put a stop clock on not just kicks at goal like they do in the top 14, but do you take the clock off at scrums? Yeah. Do you put a clock on and say it's got to be formed in 30 seconds? There's a range of ideas all linked to, to restarting the game and then helping that scrum as as keeping it as close to a contest as it can be. The, the clock on idea, the, the time that is spent, the time wasting that is spent around setting up scrums. If you go back, if you go back to, the, uh, you know, I mean, all our yesterdays, etc. but go back to the 1974 Lions Tour. If you look at the speed with which the scrums were set, they yeah. were there in an instant. They were set almost immediately and the ball was out almost immediately. This, you, you know, the, the fact that it's become a sort of palaver with blokes doing up their, their shoelaces, uh, water carrier coaches coming on with the latest bit of advice, you know, yeah. the thing takes forever. And that, that, that protocol is, is something that is not in the laws of the game and should be tightened up massively. Have a clock on it. Get them there within, you know, get it set within 20 seconds. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. I, I would agree with putting a stop clock on getting it formed. I think putting the time off for the actual scrums wouldn't work. We'd be there three hours later still. The, the problem with putting a stop clock on, particularly take kicks in the top 14, but I think kicks in the top 14 actually take longer than they do in the premiership because the kicker's actively got a clock to look at, so knows how much time he's got to waste. So you may stop one or two kicks going over the 90 seconds or the 60 seconds, but the kicks that would traditionally be done in 30 seconds would then start taking 40, 50 seconds, and it'll probably be law of unintended consequences introduced for the right reasons, but give someone a clock to look at. They'll use all the time they've got in all circumstances. Nick, if it's okay with you, I'm going to leave the scrum there. Brendan, I know you have to go fairly soon. I'm going to give you the stage with forward passes right um cheers there i um i mean you could do a whole program on this so we better keep it fairly simple like nick said the lawmakers uh, are to, to blame here as much as anybody you know for 140 years it was quite simple in rugby it was the ball was not allowed to travel towards the, the opposition dead ball area that if it did it was a forward pass and in fact that is still the definition of a knock-on you knock it on, it's only a knock-on if it moves toward, before bouncing, if it moves towards the opposition's 
uh, in Baldinger. So for 140 years, there's no issue with the forward pass. Then suddenly, somebody at World Rugby discovers momentum, discovers science. You know, and of course, if you run in a straight line at 20 miles an hour and you pass, it's going to go forward three or four yards. We know that. That's that has been known forever and a day. That is why the great passers, both in history and now, and we've got people like Dan Carter, the late Dan Carter was basically doing naught miles an hour when he did his long passes. Uh, Finn Russell sl- not only slows down, but steps when he does his long uh, drift passes. Marcus Smith is the absolute master. He is very, very quick, but when he does his long pass, he jinks, he sidesteps, he even sometimes runs back a yard to give him momentum the other way so that the ball does not drift forward. These are hugely skillful players. They're the ones who need to be rewarded. There's no excuse for not being able to pass legally other than you've got to be skillful, you've got to train, and it's got to be encouraged and rewarded. Now we get World Rugby... It's only got to come out of the hands in a backward position. If it drifts forward five yards, well, that's tough. Well, the good player knows that it's going to drift forward. That's always going to be the case. Nothing changes there. But you've got the current situation, and there was three instances I watched over the weekend where the ref said, oh, it's come out flat. That's okay. If it comes out flat and goes a long way, that is by definition, even under the latest existing rubbish law, a forward pass. Um. I agree. I'm a scientist and I am the first to admit the laws of momentum. Um, yeah, they exist, but they're baffling and most people don't understand them. Um, and we talk about making understandable decisions in rugby where we can uh, and forward passes don't come into that bracket. Um, there was a try in a sale game Friday night a few weeks ago where the ball is past one side of the 22, caught the other side of the 22 and it's a try. And you're like, well, OK, the ball may come out of the hands backwards not moving towards the opposition goal line but no one understands why it's a try when it's gone from one side to the other side of the 22 um i I completely get that i think we can simplify it i think we should and make it more understandable than what the current law certainly does the other point is there is actually some technology being trialed on this i think it's been trialed in the premiership cup around whether probably very akin to hawkeye in in cricket and in, in tennis to try and sort of objectively adjudicate on this I suppose like they do VAR as well yeah. um, whether that's successful or not I don't know and it will still face the same challenge you will still have scenarios where the technology says it's legal but the picture you're seeing is it going across a line and everyone going well the technology is just wrong because um, they won't understand the, the rationale behind it so the only way you're going to get to understand all decisions is just to, is to, as you say, change the law and ref what everyone can see as a forward pass, as a forward pass. And of course, the perverse thing is, Craig, for 90% of the game, it, everybody does just normally pass, you know, when they're not full tilt. It's, all, it's always in, in the out-and-out attack mode, isn't it, really, where these really dodgy passes are allowed. Because the rest of the time, 10 passes it to 12, it goes back about five yards, 12 kicks it into touch, yeah. whatever interplay amongst the forwards. Science is still applying there, but they play within the science. It's only when you get that three or four instances a game, normally when you've got a big bloke on the outside going at 20 miles an hour who's not a skillful player, and he just thinks he's got the right to chuck it out as long as it goes... Well, like I say, nowadays, even flat is considered okay. Even the existing law says it's got to go backwards initially. It's always the passes that lead to match-winning tries. (laughs) Gleefully gleefully for us to have to adjudicate on. (laughs) I've got another theory. Even on the absolute walk-in, the two-on-ones, where everybody knows a try is about to be scored, I reckon 50% of those are forward passes because everybody turns off. 
Even the defence have turned off. They're going to score a try. The attacking try, it's two on one. They're going to score a try. A referee, 20 yards away, they've scored. And often... I'd be a bit pass, pass, You'd be on, on the shoulder. <laughs> often, that, that last pass is really dodgy and it never gets looked at. Yeah, I did notice that a couple of times in the Six Nations, to be fair. And I do wonder whether that wonder try, I haven't looked at it closely, but when Caden Murley, who actually came on the podcast a few weeks ago, when he passed to Joe March, whether that was a touch shady, because March was very close. <laughs> he, was, he was very flat, uh, Joe March, and, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that that try stood. Look, I want to do one quick note on high tackles. I don't think we can mention contentious laws without mentioning them. Um, now, we've mentioned the concept of referee's judgment and it's as you see it is this the case with high tackles as well Craig obviously it's not it can't be black and white it never can be so is it just fairly arbitrary in terms of what's high danger what's low danger I think the framework clearly has helped Um, it's made it a lot more structured in terms of the process we go through and it's standardized it across the board but as you've alluded to for whatever process you, you come up with there's still judgments to be made and as long as we're humans and not robots people will have different judgments so what someone perceives as high danger, someone else may not see as high danger. What someone perceives as a sudden change in direction, someone else may actually go, well, no, that's not a sudden change of direction. The player should have just been lower. And you'll continue to have those disagreements. Um, the, strength, the strength of any referee is articulating what he's seeing so people at least understand how the process has been followed and how that decision has been arrived at. But yeah, th- those disagreements will always exist because we're we're making we're making judgments. All I would say is, from a Premiership perspective, I think we've only had one red card overturned that we've given this year for high tackles. So when we do go down that route of sanctioning, we're we're normally pretty accurate. And I think the the game has changed, and like what a red card is has changed. Go back to when I started, a red card is not defined how it is now. The game is moving to protect player safety, is moving to protect player welfare. So red cards aren't now just given for those stamps and kicks to the head, the acts of thuggery. But the modern day red card looks very different and has to look very different because of where the game is and is moving towards and rightly so. But that's going to take a long time for people to get used to. Yeah. So a lot of chat around this 20 minute red card at the moment and people going, oh, well, lots of these red cards are quite grey and harsh. They're not. That is a new look red card. People just need time to get used to the fact that is what a red card looks like in the game, where we are. And obviously player welfare first. And I think that's what maybe people need to be living by that mantra. I thought it might be quite fun to do every week. And I asked you this as well, Craig, during our 15 questions. We ask our special guests, rugby rule you would change or rugby law you would change. And I thought it would be quite a nice idea to float some of the things that they've brought forward with you. And you can you know, dismiss the suggestion as complete tripe in a word if you want, or you can, you know, we can have a little discussion about it, ideally not too long, again, for the sake of time. Some of them are a little bit ridiculous. Some of them are a little bit more normal. So we'll start with the most frequently mentioned ones, one of which is getting rid of or significantly reducing the number of subs. Uh, Yes, you say quite common. Uh, I'd quite happily see them reduced. Um, I'd no issue reducing them to say, Five, three of them being front row, and then you've got two that then sit outside of the front row. Limits, obviously, the number of players you can bring on. It forces the number of players on the pitch to be fitter because I think that's the end goal, isn't it, with that? There's an element of continuity to the game and there's also an element of reducing the size of players because they've got to be fitter and more robust um, to last the 80 minutes. But I think that's a big ask for front rowers to be scrummaging for 80 minutes. Yeah, so I, I this is why I'm quite happy to see three of them on the bench to give them a break. Couldn't, couldn't disagree more. They should be able to scrummage for 60 minutes, particularly when at the moment there are only about 
you know, on average about oh, some, some of the games. 60 minutes, yeah, 80, 80 minutes. 80, just minutes gets very... 80 minutes, sorry, not 60, 80, okay. 80 minutes. There's no, there's absolutely no reason why not. They are, a lot of them are too big at the moment. You know, you get, when you get getting guys carrying 18, 19 stone around, yeah, they're not going to, or 20 stone around, they're not going to be able to last 80 minutes. They shouldn't be. You go back again, you know, the idea of being able to change somebody and bring somebody on completely fresh against a bloke in a nutritional position, like a front row position, is nuts. The solution to that then is you have the three of them on the bench and basically say, unless he's injured, blood or HRA, you're you're not allowed on. You're not allowed on. Get rid of tactical subs. That's right. Yeah, which has been, that was what, um, yeah, and the guys who have suggested it, we've had Jeremy Guscott, Tony Underwood, Phil DeGlandle, David Blackman. So, you know, very much not the current generation of players. We haven't I'm had a single current... glad to see Flat suggesting it after he's retired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I suppose it's easy to suggest when you're not on the field. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, to be, I... but to be fair to him, when he started playing, he would have seen out full 80. But I guess what it does, what it would mean as well is that the, the sort of the beginning of prop age would be even later because you wouldn't want your 20-year-old props to be doing a full 80 minutes when they're so raw and not used to the pressures of being opposite a Joe Marler type. Uh, you probably get shorter scrims, though, wouldn't you? Going back to you want the ball in, the ball out after a contest. There's no way if a prop's got to be on the pitch for 80 minutes, they're going to want all those scrums to last yeah. for the duration. They're going to want it in and out ASAP because otherwise sitting at that height with that much pressure on you, you you're going to become very tired very quickly. Yeah, exactly. So how likely, Craig, do you think that would be? <laughs> you, you, you're going to need somewhere to trial it first, but to be honest, yeah. I think you, you'd have more unions and competitions willing to trial that than the 20-minute record. Yeah, okay, interesting. All right, let's keep going. So Rocky Clark and Michael Owen suggested allowing crooked line-up throws to be fine if they are not contested. I don't have an issue with that. There's an element at the moment of chicken and egg, isn't there? So is the line-out throw crooked because the other team know they're never going to be able to contest it. But equally, if, if they contest it and it's down the middle, great. If they contest it and it's not straight, obviously we deal with it. But if they're not putting a man in the air, does it really matter? Nick, I can tell you disagree. <laughs> Unfortunately, we, we don't have time, but I will, I will. It's fascinating. All I'd say is this is chicken and egg. If you've got a driving mall, which is fundamentally based on obstruction, you will have people who are, who are committed to p- keeping bodies on the ground at the line-out. The not straight at the line-out is as corrosive as the not straight at the scrum. You need to make sure that the art of the hooker throwing the ball in accurately is maintained. Throw it down the middle, then there's a fair contest. But what we're saying is if there is no contest, then just allow it because the diff- I agree with the crooked uh, if there's a contest a crooked line out feed is just like well, a crooked don't know scrum whether feed. there's going to be a contest or not no but this is why the decision is made after it happens if there's not been a contest just allow the game to go on otherwise you're slowing it down even more yeah, yeah, well hookers give us grief all the time goes back to the scrum feed you're like the, <laughs> the nine could throw the ball to the eight's feet I've got to throw the ball 15 metres perfectly yeah. straight um, yeah, it's a running, running bit of a joke between yeah, us and well, the hookers. Look, the obviously, Rocky and Michael, they're not suggesting that the art of throwing yeah, it's only goes out denies a contest. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Right, let's keep going. Uh, James and Martin Whitcomb, so father, son, both suggested getting rid of the mark. Scrums? No, calling a mark. Oh, um, I didn't even thought about that, to be fair. I'm guessing it means that teams have got to keep running adds continuity because what they call a mark just to get, allow their team to get back behind the ball don't they and then to reset yeah. 
Um, so five. Again, it's one less stoppage in the game. So if again, if it's all moving towards adding continuity, forcing teams to run with the ball, um, again, the pitfall of getting rid of it is you may see more aimless kicks, but they normally aimlessly kick a mark anyway. So yeah. I'm not sure you'd lose too much by getting That's rid of it. That's very true. Okay. Not, not particularly likely, that change, I don't think. Yes, no, no, there's, no, no. Not going to happen. Right. Shane Williams said fewer TMO decisions, which we've already alluded to. Gavin Hastings said stop the clock for scrums which we've already said will take about three hours. So I'm going to say that, that those are your views on that, Craig. You already missed the 10 o'clock news if it's a Friday night game anyway. But... <laughs> <laughs> Emily Scarrett said flopping on top of a mall that goes to ground should be illegal. Yeah, there's so many situations where as referees, you can see that the ball it would be available, yeah, but we're I'm powerless to call people off it because when they went to ground, they're already on the ball. There's so much opportunity there to get more continuity in the game. How likely do you think that would be? Um, it's relatively, it's a more simple one to change, isn't it? But based yeah. on the fact it's been talked about for a long time and hasn't come in, I think tells you all you need to know. It's, that it's probably unlikely to be changed. Yeah, that's a shame, that one. Two more, as far as I can see. No, three more, sorry. Cade and Murley said get rid of the caterpillar. Uh, um, at the breakdown for the box kicks, more charge downs and therefore more a chance for counter-attacks, etc. Uh, yeah, that's, there's two ways to that. You, you could either get rid of them, but that will introduce complexities because if you have a counter-ruck coming, people are naturally going to come in and, and join that, that counter-ruck, which naturally extends how long the ruck is. So differentiating between yeah, what is just a ruck because there's a good competition with lots of people there and what is then manufactured becomes another judgment to make. I think this goes back to how we referee it. Like we can put a lot more pressure onto the players to get on with it. And if you wanted to change the five seconds that they've got to use it to three seconds. So there's there's easier things there that can be done to rectify that. Um, okay. You saw the unintended consequence of this as well with Saracens sort of in their little arm that they brought into the game, which World Rugby then clarified they couldn't do. So defensively build a caterpillar arm that then swings round to then put someone closer to where the box kit comes in from. But this is the problem with any of these proposed law changes is you can change them. Some of them are quite definitive. Like if you say X number of subs, there's no way around that. Um, but a lot of the on-pitch laws, you'll just have some coach whose job it is to think of ways that they can get the same desired effect by working around the law. That's the thing is people will always find ways to circumvent it and find a little cheat ways. Two slightly more ridiculous ones to finish. Toby Flood, and this is more a personal sort of, he's, he's, he's in mourning for the death of kickoffs from a high seat because he says he spent hours and hours practicing it. And then they got rid of it and replaced it with a drop kick. Um, I'm guessing, Craig, that's not a particularly likely one to come back. Uh, no, but having seen the start of that Super League game where the tea came on with a kid in a remote control car and he refused to give them the tea, um, you can make quite a good good entertainment yeah, spectacle out of it. So uh, from an entertainment perspective, I'm sure someone could come up with an ingenious idea that makes it makes it quite interesting. Last one, Tommy Allen, and this will break Nick Kane's heart and send him to <laughs> sleep crying. Uh, just as a last note, uh, get rid of scrums. I think we've we've been over that, haven't they? It's definitely not. They're definitely not going to get rid of scrums. But as we've already alluded to, the debate as to yeah how you allow them to remain as as a genuine contest and genuinely true to what they are, while trying to square that off against the modern game, if you, if you can call it such. Um, that's the the debate that's been going on for 
as long as I've been involved in the game. And no one, despite a meeting of many minds, has yet cracked that to a satisfactory position. No, we'll have this conversation in 20 years and you will be well into your career as a civil servant and the debate will be exactly the same. God, well, I'm sure we could propose another 65 laws to you, Craig, and we'd be like, okay, well, this is another area of discussion. Um, Haven't you just rewritten the law book, believe it or not? I know, seriously. Well, and then I'm sure it's going to happen again next season. Craig, it's been great having you. I know we could keep going for another two or three hours if you want to miss your referee meeting completely. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been great having you. Good luck with, you said it was Sarri's extra and then the Wasps game, you are the TMO. And yeah, good luck with the start of your new career as well. I'm guessing it's in the early stages, but things will hopefully move quite quickly. Indeed, yeah, hopefully. Thank you for that. Thanks so much for coming on. Cheers, Ollie. All the best. As always, if you want to pick up a copy of the rugby paper, don't forget to get it in stores on Sundays or through our digital subscription, have it delivered straight to your door. We will see you next week for episode 13.